welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on June 26th, Lord's Day Service. This morning is the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, beginning in verse 35. Leviticus 25, 35. If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God, that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, to give you the land of Canaan, and to be your God. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you, and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family." He shall return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them with rigor, but you shall fear your God. Verse 47, now if a sojourner or stranger comes to you, becomes rich, and one of your brethren dwells by him, becomes poor, and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you, or to a member of the stranger's family, after he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him, and if he is able, he may redeem himself. Thus he shall reckon with him who bought him. The price of his release shall be according to the number of years from the year that he was sold to him until the year of Jubilee. It shall be according to the time of the hired servant for him. If there are still many years remaining, according to them he shall repay the price of his redemption from the money which he was brought. And if there remain but a few years till the year of Jubilee, he shall reckon with him, and according to his years he shall repay him the price of his redemption. He shall be with him as a yearly hired servant, and shall rule not with rigor over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed in these years, he shall be released in the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants, whom I bought, brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Let us pray. Our Father in God, thank you for the redemption given to us through Christ, for being brought out of darkness into your marvelous light. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The last time we looked at Leviticus, we saw a description of the year of Jubilee. But here in the midst of this description, we see an extended discussion of Israel's responsibility towards their brothers. You might think when you're reading about the Jubilee, well, every 50 years they're going to be released. So you just kind of have to wait and watch and say, boy, I hate it for you that you're in slavery and and everything. But no, he doesn't stop there. 
he says that the people of Israel have a responsibility to their brothers. For the ancient Israelite, it would be easy to get so focused on the Jubilee celebration that they forget their responsibility to redeem their brothers and sisters. When you hear the word redemption, we often forget about this part. What well, we, we think immediately about Jesus. We think because, you know, the word redemption, we talk about being redeemed. We think of Jesus' work for us, freeing us from the curse of the law and bondage to sin. And all that is true. The work of Christ is wonderful and it is a great thing. It is the greatest blessing we can enjoy. But it doesn't stop. Redemption does not stop with what Jesus did. The work of Christ is the launching pad for God's people to participate in the rescue of others. I'm going to say that again. The work of Christ is the launching pad for God's people to participate in the rescue of others. God calls his people to the work of redemption. It's not only something that we receive. It's something that we participate in. In. No, we don't supplant the work of Christ. I do not mean that. The work of Christ is accomplished and it's finished. But just like you can't say after you become a Christian, you know, I'm just going to wait for my sanctification. And then when I feel like it and it comes, then I'll start living a godly life. That's how you walk away from God. No, you're called to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. People have always made bad choices. Sometimes God's providence is hard. In ancient Israel, if you had a debt you could not pay, you would go into slavery to pay it. They didn't have the debated student loan forgiveness program in ancient Israel, where by the wave of a president's hand and Congress's magic declaration, debt just vanishes. No, you would actually have to work for the person to whom you owed the debt. Once a man was stuck in the quicksand of debt, it could not only ruin him, it could also ruin his family. And then on top, you add to that that some people would go into debt to foreigners, to people, a scripture here calls them strangers who were in the land. Someone who's not a native Israelite, who's uncircumcised, but who lived in Palestine at the time. And if you went into debt to that person, it, was much, it could be worse. Building a culture, which is a big part of the book of Leviticus, building a culture means protecting the weakest in that culture. Think about your own, just your very body. If you're healthy, it's because your body actively fights off certain things that want to come in to your body. So the culture that we have is a gift, but it's also one we must protect. Now God's people had to be careful, and he warns them here to be careful, not to look down on those who were indebted. 
Larson talked about this this morning. There, there are people who come in, and I have no doubt there will be more people who come in to this fellowship who do things that we consider weak. We think, I don't agree with that. Must be a weaker brother. But Scripture says we cannot look down on them. And there are people, not even just the things that we consider are weak, like they don't watch the movies that I watch, therefore I'm going to pray for them that God enlightens them. You know, aside from that, things like somebody who comes in who's been involved in things that we would never want our children to be involved in. Refugees come in from the world. And sometimes when they come... We don't relate to them as well. But when God's people were indebted, when God's people were, were given over to slavery, when they, when they sold themselves to slavery, Yahweh instructs his people to treat them with extra grace. If someone is bound in this, don't say, what a sorry piece of garbage that is. I thank you, God, that I would not ever do anything like that. You heard any parable like that recently? That's our temptation because we're human. We're, we're trying to follow God, but we think that there's a problem because this person has sin. And yes, that is a problem, but our job is not to say, I'm going to keep that person at arm's length until they get righteous. Then... I'm going to love them. He, he tells his people in verse 36 to treat their brothers with extra grace. If someone had a, had a need, he said, don't charge usury. Don't invest, don't lend to them for profit. If you have food to sell, don't sell it at your regular profit-making margin. He, he says, when someone has a need, you're called to suspend normal economic expectations in those cases. If slavery for repaying debts was necessary, still the man must be treated with dignity, not demeaned. He says specifically in verse 39, not as a bond servant are not as a slave. So the distinction is made here between slavery and servitude, but, but, but in ancient times, they were both you know, having to work for a person, being forced to because of debt, that is a form of slavery. The difference is, if one is, as what it's called here, a servant, that person would be taught a craft or some work where he could learn and excel. Someone has a debt, you would take them on if you had the ability, and you would teach that person how to do something with which he could supply his needs for the rest of his life. Not just having to wait on the boss hand and foot. He was to be treated also, in verse 40, it says, with hospitality not as a burden. He said, as a hired servant and a sojourner he shall be to you and shall serve to the year of Jubilee. You're required to welcome a sojourner, someone who is a foreigner who had come in who wanted the protection of Israel. They were required to give that person protection. And you think about it. 
If someone was leaving their, 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 their pagan ways and they wanted to come where they knew there was upright and a just society, they would come to Israel. Well, who's supposed to take care of this person? Whoever had the opportunity to do so. So anyone who wants to come in and who, who seeks status, who seeks protection there, they're not to be counted as a burden. But they're to be treated well, especially those who wanted to come in and join themselves to God's people. If a wealthy outsider acquired an Israelite as a slave, the family of that Israelite was called to buy the person back, to buy that slave back so that he was protected within the family. It begins with the household and then spreads from there. Even if he could not be redeemed, Israel was called to protect the slaves who belonged to foreigners. They were at verse 53 they were to enact laws that would require even those who were not Israelites, if someone was an outsider who was living in Palestine at the time, the laws of Israel were that he had to treat his servant well, even though he was not a member of the covenant. So we see these expectations and we, we think, well, that's fine, but that's, that's Old Covenant. That's Israel a long time ago. And where are we? We're New Covenant Christians. So all that slave talk is dead. It's gone. doesn't apply to us. But slave language does not disappear from Scripture. The slave language, even for the Israelites themselves did not disappear, even though they had once been slaves in Egypt and they were brought out, they're still counted as slaves. Verse 55 makes it clear. They're still slaves, but the difference is now Israel had a new master. For the children of Israel, this is God speaking, are servants to me. They are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Israel no longer belonged to the gods of Egypt. And that's exactly how Scripture treats them. It doesn't just say that they were in bondage to Pharaoh. They were in bondage to the very gods of Egypt. But no longer. They're no longer the slaves of those gods. They are now the slaves of the one God, of Yahweh. And as slaves of Yahweh, they are called to rescue, to redeem their brothers from bondage. So even when servitude is necessary, for the person who cannot remain free, and there are people who, even though, though they were free, they would continue going back to the old form, that, that they would make bad choices again and again, they were to be protected Because the people of God were supposed to have the interest of the person at heart, not their own economic benefit at heart. Yahweh is in the work of freeing people from the gods of the world. 
He was here and he still is now. It's still the responsibility of God's people. Just as Israel imitated the work of redemption through helping their family and neighbors, in the new covenant we are called to imitate Christ through redeeming and rescuing those who are bound. The Lord will give us those opportunities. The question is, how do we receive them? What do we do when the opportunities come? In Isaiah 61, we we looked at this last time, the prophecy of an upcoming jubilee year is given. And one of those statements in Isaiah 61 is that the Messiah, the anointed one, would proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who were bound. So we see Jesus doing that very thing in his ministry after he proclaimed this in Luke chapter 4 when he read Isaiah 61. He said, this day is a scripture fulfilled in your ears saying that he himself is that anointed one who would come. Jesus goes about healing the sick, casting out devils, freeing those who are bound. But it doesn't stop with Jesus. In John chapter 20, when Jesus appears to his apostles after his resurrection, we have what's called by some a little Pentecost, where Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father sent me, so I send you. So he met there with ten. Thomas wasn't there. Judas was dead. Met with ten. And then, of course, we know in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes in power on all the disciples, not just the apostles. And part of their ministry is to carry the liberating message that Yahweh has freed the nations from enslavement to the gods and unto himself. As as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, whoever calls on the name of of the Lord Jesus will be saved or better better expressions will be freed will be liberated but the freedom that comes is not absolute you are not free to do whatever you want as long as you say i belong to Jesus i've called on the name of Jesus so i can do anything Just as Israel was freed from bondage in Egypt to now serve Yahweh, freed from bondage to the old gods to serve the true God, we too are redeemed from the principalities and powers as slaves to Christ. We don't have this amorphous status as, oh, now we're free. We can do whatever we want. That was the original lie. You can be as God, right? Nowhere in the New Testament do you see you can do whatever you want now because you're free in Christ. That message is not a biblical one. We are slaves. But we are slaves to Christ. We are rescued from the hard bondage of our old masters and we receive the easy yoke Jesus 
We see this continued in the Apostle Paul's letters, especially in Romans chapter 1. Paul introduces himself to the church of Rome as a, a doulos, a bond slave to Christ. And he does the same in Galatians chapter 1 and Titus as well. So Paul called himself a bond slave. Scripture presents us in, in a unique twofold way. We are both sons of Yahweh and slaves to Christ, who is the good older brother. It should bring to mind the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus is not the unfaithful older brother. He is the good older brother. When our inheritance was sold off, when we gave it up in our father, Adam. Well, when our inheritance is sold off, who's the only one that has any, any inheritance now to give? It's Jesus. And he brings us back. And everything that there is to have that is good is his. And he shares it with us now. And just as a side note, Think about all the parables that Jesus tells that have servants, slaves, and stewards. If you understanding that we are slaves, we're both slaves and stewards, that can open up some of these parables. Because that's how God's people are, are, are talked about. That's how they're treated in Scripture. So then what does it mean directly for us then? The text in Leviticus reveals several principles about our responsibilities towards those who are weak or enslaved. Number one, and I'm, I'm going to go through these somewhat quickly, but number one, God's people must protect their own. The first principle is that God's people must protect their own. We must do whatever is necessary to help those who seek shelter in the shadow of the Almighty. Number two, help is not just throwing money at the problem. Help does not mean throwing money at the problem. We've been around long enough, and many in our church do a really good job paying attention to ongoing current events we know what Washington, D.C.'s answer is. Whenever there is a group who is seen as weak or oppressed, what do we do? We say, let's give a lot of money to this cause. What happens then to that group that we throw a lot of money to? They become enslaved to our government. Do you know how, and this is, I'm interweaving here just a little bit of historical study, but it's not very hard to find. If when we want a country, a foreign country, to do what we want them to do, how do we get the hooks in? We don't say, do what we want or else. We say, would you like some foreign aid? That's a great way to do it. The country takes the bait, and we, they also, with that bait, take the hooks, and now they do whatever we want them to because at any point we can threaten to take the money away, and they're stuck, and they know this. This is just imperialism 101. 
right? This, this, is, this is what it looks like now. So for us as God's people, what can we learn from this? The answer is not to just when someone has a problem and people have problems. When there is a problem, it's not to say, let's just take care of it all financially. It means, for, for individually speaking, it means vocational discipleship. It means teaching responsibility. It means helping people build wise habits. Israelite servitude, when, when someone was in debt and an Israelite would pay that brother, that person's debt and redeem him, and that person now had money to pay off. Well, it was not demeaning, but helpful. It was teaching that person to produce, to develop, to help them grow in, in making wiser choices. This, I hope, can give a little bit of uh, light to Paul's command in Ephesians 4.28 where Paul says, let him that stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may give to those with needs. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying the same thing that they're told to do in Leviticus. If someone who had formerly been caught in this case who was a thief, what do you do? Teach them to work. That's vocational discipleship. And that is part of the church's role. The church, I mean, God's people. So don't, we don't just throw money at the problem, but we teach, we help people to grow. Number three, the third principle of helping is that some take longer to grow than others. Some take longer to grow than others you don't have to write this part down, but it's just an observation of human nature. Sometimes people do not learn. We, we see this. Now, I would love to say if you do everything right, if you get all the levers exactly right in your discipleship and working with someone, you can ensure 100% success. Now, Peter talks about those who cannot no matter what happens, that they always go back to their old ways in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, where he says, While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than at the beginning. That happens in the church. That happens. But that doesn't mean that we say, okay, I tried to help someone. I took an afternoon and we looked at some financial, you know, you know how to make good financial decisions and they went, went out immediately and did something stupid. I'm done. I tried once, and, and it's... No, it takes patience because some people just take longer to learn. Number four, we're called to welcome refugees from the world. Welcome refugees from the world. There will be people who come to us with unique, let's say, testimonies. 
most of us have the context to know what a testimony is. There, will be, there are people who come who have this. So as, as I said earlier, we must not reject them simply because they have not achieved my personal level of godliness. Just because they don't use the right language. They don't speak about God and His sovereignty the way that good Calvinistic people ought to speak. No, this is messy, okay? Let's just be honest. This is messy. I've got a friend of mine who works in Austria with refugees. And he just recently sent out, he's a missionary, he, he sent out a report about all the refugees that are coming in from Ukraine. Before, they, most of the refugees were from Islamic countries. Now they're also receiving refugees from Ukraine. And you might probably not be shocked to hear that it's not a very uh, super orderly, highly processed work. It can be really messy. The church can be the same way. But I'm going to tell you something. If your church is polished and has no spots at all and we keep everything perfectly Cloroxed where, there are, where nothing shows up, that's a problem actually. We should strive for godliness. But we also must welcome those who come who are refugees. And Doug Wilson makes this distinction, and it's a very helpful distinction between refugees from the world and apostles of the world. We do not welcome people who are bringing the message of the world into the church. So when someone says, I've got a great idea, how about we lower our standards of belief and, you, you know, you can fill in the blanks, or lower the moral expectations because, after all, Sojourners, you know, and have to be loving and winsome and, and all those other things. No, we don't welcome apostles of the world, but refugees from the world. And I would add here too, you know, with this, it does not mean that everything that you do, every work that you, in which you participate must be something that is under and through the, the institution of the church. So, so don't try to make every act of ministry something that is under the church. But rather live as the church in the world. Welcome those whom you know, bless those, encourage, participate in being a, a disciple maker for people who need it, Go about that task. And lastly, don't take the responsibility of the world on your back. For the people, and we have them in our church, who earnestly desire this, they have a tender heart, they want to minister to others, and they feel, you know, after hearing this message, they look out and they see the field is white unto harvest and it just staggers them. Say, oh my I can't possibly reach all the people here. It's not your job. That's not your job. As one pastor I recently heard said, I love this quote, 
He said, quote, God didn't appoint you to be the world's Messiah. That job was already done and quite well, I might add. So what am I saying? What is the application for this? You can sum it up this way. Go out and love your neighbor. Bless and restore whoever God puts across your path. The work of redemption was completed by Christ. But it will not be fully displayed until the last day when the saints are resurrected. So until then, we get the privilege of showing the redemption of Christ by loving and rescuing those who are weak. Let's pray. Our Father in God, thank you for the work that you've given. Thank you for the privilege of being your children and participating in the work that was begun by Christ. May we be faithful stewards of all of our tasks with the gifts you've given. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.